think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 51 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 52nd episode. We are now back after some staggered travel between uh, Etienne and myself. Etienne uh, to the Maghreb to become a married man. This is true. Which he now is. He can now say, Borat voice my wife, uh, and be <laughs> referring to, to a person, which is good. Uh, I was in Germany uh, on, on business travel, which was a lovely experience. Uh, Germany, I f- or Berlin, I found, is, uh, is Germany's Montreal. Um, mm. It's very interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. a fair characterization, it's, it's I think. A cool town, would recommend. Um, it was a good time. Uh, yeah, so we are now both back finally, uh, and it is also sweltering hot in Ottawa, though we've we've apparently passed the worst of, of it for the last week or two. I would add about Morocco, socialist paradise. Everywhere you go, everything seems to be made by a co-op. But not really. But not really. Everything is a woman's co-op until you start digging into the uh, the specifics of what that means exactly. So I'm inter- you mentioned this when we were talking the other day, but like, did you ask people for like their incorporation documents? Like, how did you discern that this was fake news? No, it's just if you read the inf- um, sort of the literature around the Tanyan t- tourist literature, namely, it both tells you what the genuine co-ops are. Okay. And the fact that basically everyone tells you everything is a co-op. See, you know what? It would be great just to live in a country where being a co-op is a great marketing move. <laughs> so, like, there was one we, we pulled up on the side of the road. It was, well, we were, we were pulling up to the restaurant and we popped over to the store completely. The same as every other store selling a mishmash of things that were all likely not produced by anyone related to that store. And it's like, oh, this is our, our women's and men's co-op. It's not on the side. It's not anywhere. I, I doubt these goods were produced by you. Some of them were probably from China. Like, no. I like to think of like a large factory in China that only makes like Moroccan goods, like carpets and one, lamps one, and tagines. 100% and, this is a thing. It's just it's very whimsical. Uh, as a th- well, I mean, not really. It's actually it's kind of bleak. It's actually I, incredibly bleak. Most it's of them are probably not in China. Most of them are probably in India. Actually, a lot of apparently a lot of market goods in Morocco and sort of that area of the world are mirrored almost exactly in India. Hmm. So I see. Well, that kind of makes sense, I guess. Capitalism, globalism, Woo! globalism, indeed. Choo choo, um, choo choo, indeed. Uh, so um, there's been, you know, it's been a bit of a slow news couple of weeks. Um, this is usually the case once the House of Commons rises, uh, because the House of Commons is the most important institution uh, in the country. This is my, everyone pays attention to its comings and goings. This obviously. is my least favorite part about summer: is the lack of sort of legislative developments to follow yeah. and to, to keep me on edge every every day. Yes. And instead, there's just a whole lot of nothing, and nothing exciting is going on typically. So, with that, you know, great introduction into our topics today. Uh, there has been quite a bit on of discussion around the Safe Third Country Agreement and immigration more broadly in light of the Trump administration's uh, children concentration camps that they had for a little while there and sort of continued. Still. Then are there family concentration camps, which obviously is much better. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Sure. Where to begin? Where to be- uh, well, okay. I mean, you sounded like you had a real lead. In, <laughs> well, so. I, I'd forgotten that aspect of it. And we, Well, that's really what sparked this conversation. I we think, can, around, we yeah. can certainly... No, well... It, it, was, it was ongoing and sort of simmering, but yes, I think this sort of reached a crisis point with uh, with that. Okay, so let's let's back up here okay. and uh, back it up, back it up, and do sort of background on this, right? So we previously did an episode on safe third countries, so this serves somewhat as an update to that. Yes, it's called the backdoor port of entry loophole, I believe. Yes, um, when some of the um, Immigration issues as or asylum claims coming across the border, not at ports of entry, yeah. became an issue, and it's when the safe third country really sort of sprang yeah. into the public consciousness. And speaking of that, I think it is important to note that asylum issues are not really strictly speaking immigration issues. Like it's kind of a different pot. Like it goes through the same infrastructure, but it's like kind of a different thing. Correct. Um, so all all of these terms, especially in media discussions, the difference between immigration or immigrant. Yeah. Refugee, well, yeah, it's, asylum claimant, it's not all helped, get murky. It's not helped by right-wing media that sort of deliberately conflates all three of those things. Um, but uh, they all have very distinct, yes. precise legal meaning, yes. uh, meanings, and they're all very yeah. different channels to gain entry. To we're Canada. not going to do a super long explainer of, of any of that here today, but I really do recommend if you are looking for, for sort of a primer on the issues and the real technicalities of it, 
that episode, once again, entitled The Backdoor Port of Entry Loophole. They're really proud of your work there. It was very funny, uh, but also I don't remember what number it was, so this is a more useful uh, reference. But yes, that one is very good and gave a lot of very technical, detailed explanation on how this works. So just to, to direct your attention to that, I uh, would recommend if you are looking for an even deeper dive. Okay, so for the purposes of this podcast, my intent is not really to dig into American policy or even really to discuss American policy outside of how it impacts Canadian policy. Yeah, other people do are paid a lot of money to discuss American politics, so yes. we'll leave it to them. Um, so... We have thoughts. We have thoughts. But, in you know. mid-late June, it came to light that the United States was pursuing a new policy around immigration or was enforcing a different one yeah. or a policy differently. The zero-tolerance policy. Uh, yes. And wh- so what that centers around is... As I understand it, is basically when someone crosses the border into the United States, that is a federal offense. Yes. Well, okay, it, let's be clear here. Outside of a regular port of entry. Outs- yes. yes. Outside of a regular port of entry. <laughs> it's not illegal to go to the United States. <laughs> no. <laughs> when, when they cross the border, this is where sort of the term illegal comes in for yes. illegal border crossers, illegal migrants. Though, as it turns out, it is about as illegal as jaywalking. Sure. Yes, because it is a misdemeanor. But this matters in the context of what is happening now that wasn't happening yes. before. Absol- no, absolutely. I just want to give that context. That it's not like, they don't like chop off your hand, right? It's like, it's it's a misdemeanor. Okay. So you have migrants or asylum seekers, often both, um, coming from South American, Central American countries. Yeah, mostly in- what is called the Northern Triangle, which is uh, Guatemala. You'll see this term crop up a lot. No one seems to bother to explain it, but it's Guatemala, Honduras, and uh, El Salvador. Yes. Um, often because of violence um, yes. in their countries, particularly in the case of El Salvador. Yes. Um, coming to the United States, crossing not at port of entries. Ports of entry. Ports of entry. Um, but instead across uh, sort of wilderness areas yeah. between ports of entry. Yeah, often people from these countries will pay basically like a people smuggler. Yes, uh, coyote, to, a coyote, coyote is, yes, the, is the, the Mexican term. Uh, we'll come and bring them from you know Guatemala, Honduras, wherever. To uh, the U.S. Okay. Yeah. And so this has been happening for a while. They get into the United States where they're either um, sought by police or they present themselves by police or other forms of law enforcement or they present themselves to law enforcement to claim asylum. Yes. And what's happening is often um, CBP or ICE is catching these individuals and charging them with that misdemeanor. Yeah. And the fact that it is a criminal offense means that these individuals are going to jail. Yeah. In addition to, and sort of on the periphery of their typical asylum claim process. Can I make a a point about, why don't they just go to the normal ports of entry? Because from what it sounds like, and the weeds um, from Vox covered this pretty in detail, and their immigration reporting generally is very good, and I highly recommend you look at it for detailed information on the topic in the U.S., but it seems like basically the regular ports of entry are basically doing a slowdown to make it as difficult as possible for people to claim asylum through regular channels. So they'll say, we can't take you in the sense that they have too long a backlog or they say, sure, wait six weeks. And, you know, this is pe- people are coming more or less empty handed because they've sort of left their their lives because they have to to flee violence uh, and are, you know, told that the, in the Mexican desert, like, OK, we'll hold on for six weeks while we process this. And obviously that's just like not an option for a lot of people. So this is why people are resorting to crossing at irregular uh, crossings and not ports of entry, because the U.S. government has really made it a policy to make it unfeasible to do so. So. Sure. Very important context. Um, so these individuals who are basically caught by ICE or CBP are getting put into prison, and because they're in prison, um, they're being jail. split jail prison. Yes, sorry, you're you're right there. Um, they're being split from their children, and their children are essentially being detained separately. And that is what is at issue here. Uh, seemingly before under. Uh, the Obama administration and others, you know, there were instances of families being detained together, yes. but generally, in most cases, it seems as though um, the misdemeanor for the illegal crossing was not being enforced in the same way. Yeah. If it was enforced at all, it was essentially time served or... Sure. And, and, like, to be also very clear about this, like, many misdemeanors are very rarely prosecuted or charged. Like, it is... Like jaywalking. Well, I think that's probably sure. an administrative fee or whatever. But like, yeah, it's not a misdemeanor. Uh, but no, I mean, like there are lots of like as has been pointed out many, many times. Most people commit several crimes a day without usually even being aware of it. 
Um, so, like, zero tolerance is very much, like, the idea, like, when you say rule of law, whatever, okay, sure, fine, but, like, rule of law is always selectively applied. Sure. So. Um, okay, so let's let's take that as our foundation to bridge back over to Canada and save yes. country. Though I, I should note as an update, uh, they seem to be moving away from the separate detention and are moving back towards the family detention that was practiced mostly by the Obama administration. Sure. Yeah. Um, yes, and we'll, we'll leave that there. There's obviously a lot yeah. to talk about there, but we are not an American media outlet, and yeah. I think a lot of podcasts, Canadian political podcasts, fall into the trope of talking about U.S. politics. Yes. Well, much. you know how Americans always joke that we're the 51st state? Like, we're actually the <laughs> Like, we're worse at that. Like, we just sort of do that in practice, but, like, don't make the joke. But, yeah. Um, so. It's our best spectator sport, American politics. When this started going on, uh, a lot of people looked at American media and were rightfully appalled at what was going on. And their reaction was, let's suspend safe third country. Yeah. This is the Canadian solution to it. We should, you should briefly... Explain what a safe third country agreement is. Okay. Yes. So safe third is an agreement between Canada and the United States that says if you have uh, landed in either Canada and the United States, you cannot then travel through a port of entry to one of, uh, to the other country yeah. and make an asylum claim there. That you have to make your asylum claim in the country which you first arrived to. Yeah, because the idea being that the two systems are basically very comparable so that there shouldn't be a comparison shopping, you know, if you will, to use a very crude metaphor, yes. approach on the part of asylum seekers. Exactly. So, yeah. So what, the, what, what has become contentious here is that there is no longer a presumption of basic like interoperability if you will that the equivalency is no longer really there because the u.s is undertaking some of these very discriminatory and harsh policies well this is where i think it's necessary to separate what is going on with uh separate detention yeah from broader asylum policy in the united states no matter how i try and square it i have a hard time thinking that the safe third country agreement and that the suspension of the safe third country agreement as a policy would do anything to change um, the experience or the incentives around or sure. es- essentially anything in the cases where people are being detained and split from their children at the border. Yeah, no, I mean, look, can, can I come from, from the perspective that is, is, you know, as much as I personally, I tend to be agnostic about like really regulatory technical questions if I don't, you know, know the issue back to front. It does seem to me that there is a strong at least political incentive to say like send the message to the u.s and to the broader international community that this is aberrant and that canada is not going to you know it's basically us saying like we do not feel comfortable as a country okay wait wait wait. i'm waiting no no no. (laughs) you're you're making an argument i'm making a political argument no i'm making a political argument i think that's really what the argument is people are, are saying this is often, like, look, all politics is fundamentally about, you know, and this is something I've said now like four times in the last week, but when the law is on your side, pound the law. When the facts are on your side, pound the facts. When neither is on your side, pound the table. Uh, like, it's it's about political argument making and about saying that this is a, you know, behavior on the part of the American government that can- Canadians are not comfortable with and are uncomfortable saying is equivalent to our own practice. Um and I think that's what it's an emotional political argument, and that's not to say that it's therefore bad, uh, because I think all arguments are ultimately emotional and political. We just find you know more or less sophisticated ways to defend our, our prior points of view and perspectives. Um, but yeah, I think that's what it is, right? Like I don't think people are like coming into this with like a tome and saying like, well, if you look at page three hundred and eighty four of my prepared uh, document briefing on this, it's uh... so le- yes. I, I tend to agree with what you're saying, but let me let me back up here and finish sort of the, Go ahead. the hard or the pure policy point, um, which is to say the people that are being impacted by this are people who are being essentially captured and detained yes. along the border. Yeah. And so these are not people, you know, in the northern states. At that point, your ability Which is to... where we would be talking about an actual impact on human beings that would be crossing. Yeah. Yes. And also, like, their northern border is with us. So it's like, yeah, I agree that this would not have like a tremendous impact on people coming from South America or Central America. Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to just generally, from it, from a hard policy perspective, to view that as a different camp. Um, that this is something that's happening in the American system that's obviously abhorrent. However, it doesn't actually directly relate to the safe third country. I think I think yeah. for now it's important to keep those separate. Yeah, no, it's um, purely what, symbolic. What you yeah. hinted at. Um, 
and mention, and I think this is the more important point, is that the American asylum process, like, yeah, writ large, yeah. As where a they've whole, sort of doing a deliberate slowdown and if, throwing if gears. That in the is changing materially. Yes, from what you know, international norms require, yeah. and and sort of what we what was going on when we agreed to this. Yes, yeah. that is when you should reconsider the safe third. Yeah. And so you've made the point that, yes, uh, you know, the suspension of the safe third is a political, you know, it's a political card that can be played yeah. to say Canada is no longer willing to cooperate, essentially, yeah. with the United States on issues well, I mean, like, our of asylum. Our tariffs were similarly, like, very political and used for maximum political advantage rather than being, like, you know, putting the economy in a stranglehold, right? Like, we, we hit Kentucky Bourbon because of Mitch McConnell. We hit whatever because of whoever else. And, like... That's really, like, the approach here. It's to be politically effective, not necessarily, like, maximum strategic economic pressure from a purely, like, calculation point of view. Sure, but I think, so, aside from sort of the domestic audience, I, I think, that where, where it differs from tariffs is that tariffs have a constituency yes, definitely. That, that is being negatively impacted and that will then exert political pressure on... You know their representatives, largely in Republican districts, yeah, or states, and or states, yeah. to push up to the top so that the Trump administration sure. is aware then, of their grievances. And this was the Kentucky Bourbon thing, right? Yes, yeah. suspend or Florida orange juice. Yeah, suspension of the safe third country does not have a comparable um, constituency po- yeah, in, in the United right. States. Yeah. You're going to have Democrats yeah. turn and say, "Look what the Canadians well, the, are doing." That's exactly it, right? It's, it gives it gives. Trudeau's political allies in the states a club that they can attack the administration with. Is it? Yeah, I mean, like you, you, Etienne just made a tiny little, a little hand, like uh, a so the reason smallest I smallest violin gesture, but not not smallest <laughs> violin, a little club. Yes. Um, and the reason I think it's a little club is I think that if more um, of Trump's base were aware of the safe third country agreement, I think they might be in favor of scrapping it generally. But what you're ascribing here is a very sophisticated technical argument to Trump supporters. No, I just think that the Trump... Not necessarily. I think the uh, Stephen Carter... Sorry, not Stephen Carter. (laughs) Stephen Miller. (laughs) Yes. Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller. Yes. uh, I was mixing that up with Carter Page. um, Of the world would be in favor of scrapping it because they can see outflows of refugees from the United States to Canada. Canada. Oh, yeah, that's what happened last winter. Um, Um, Yeah, and I think they would tend to want to encourage that. Yes. However, like, you know, how this would be read is Canada doing something that disrespects the president and therefore. Or because the president, in reaction to something the president did in a negative way, so therefore Trump supporters would read it negatively and Democratic Party supporters would read it positively. I mean, that's just kind of how American politics works and how, I mean, everywhere's politics kind of works. It's about your side, not necessarily about the issue. Uh, I would be very surprised if the Trudeau government were to uh, suspend the Safer Country Agreement if the Trump administration were then to make a very sophisticated judo flip in the way you suggest about the, the impact of this. I would be surprised about that because the normal reaction is to be like, well, fuck you too, buddy. So that's more what I would expect. I mean, it would be a great rhetorical move on their part. I agree. Like, it would be very, very clever. But I just don't think they're clever enough to make that argument, frankly. Especially on this issue. So let's let's put the political conversation on hold real quick and return to the... Uh, the pure policy side of it, and play out what would happen if Safe Third were to be suspended. So the obvious sort of expectation is a, a lot of people would see this on the news, and a lot of people with sort of uh, their status up in the air in the United States, be that they have no status, or that um, it's going through the courts, it's being litigated, it's somewhere in the process would look at Canada and say, I have a better prospect of my asylum claim being processed and processed successfully. Um, I'm going to go there. And probably not incorrectly. That said, though, I think it's worth noting that even in the U.S., you had significant disparities. Between jurisdictions. Between jurisdictions. So I I think I read something that, like, the Atlanta 
court or you know resettlement board would grant about two percent of requests where the new york one would grant about 88 percent which is like at that point it's you're barely the same country and this is from the same set of rules mind you right like this is one consistent set of like uh uscis like rules that they're enforcing but the difference between regions here and like different entities is just enormous is it is hugely different Um, in Canada, um, I think last year, to, I can't remember if it was 2016 or 2017, was essentially a record year in successful claims. And I think the success rate was as high as 70%. Yeah. Um, in the United States, I think as an average, it hovers around 50 and it's, you know, likely dipped since Trump yeah. has, uh, uh, has come in. But as an aggregate, you're 20% more likely to have your claim processed affirmatively in yeah. Canada than in the United States. Yeah. And so the so the question arises is how many people are going to make that calculation come yeah. over to Canada. So let's start with the numbers. There's I think about 500,000 claims sort of backlogged in the system in the United States. So that's that's a huge number. That is a of very people. large number, yeah. Um and it's not to say that 50% of them, 25% of them um, or less will make that determination and come come to Canada. Um, it's that even a small number of these individuals can dramatically increase the strain on our system. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, look, like we had basically a national dipe filling when we had like a couple hundred people coming across the border at sort of regular channels, and it was like just the end of the fucking world. Well, uh, it was it was more than that. It was was it okay? Let's do four thousands, digits. Four digits. Thousands. Than, yeah. But yes, Canada is certainly sensitive. Yes. To immigration, yeah. uh, immigration and asylum flows in a way in which perhaps no other country is um, outside of some islands. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And I wonder why that is. Because I mean, you have countries that take many, uh, and you know, are like broadly speaking fine. And I think we have a very, like, welcoming self-image of ourselves here. But then when it comes time to, you know, actually welcome people, it's perhaps less good. Um, but I'm, I'm a little, you know, this is not, like, a problem that's going to end soon. I think it's, like, really important to say this, that, like, when Bangladesh is underwater, right, in, like, a couple of years, uh, like, that's going to... I don't know if you guys have looked at the population of Bangladesh recently, but it's, like, 80 million. Like... It's a lot, like, there are going to be a lot of displacement from, like, climate and other things. And, like, you know, Syria alone from the Civil War uh, was obviously millions of people. And that had a huge impact. So it's like, we're, we need to, like, figure out how we're going to do this. And frankly, like, for me, the answer can't be, like, shit our pants every time people, like, want to come in. One, one of the actual interesting things on immigration, um, let, let me raise two points uh, that I heard from a speaker from a, from a U.S. Uh, think tank who, who specialized. Uh, his, his name eludes me right now. Um, he, he came to Global Affairs and was giving a talk on immigration, um, economic and otherwise, and he had two really key points in his talk. The first was how hard it is to deter um, economic migrants or other, and as well as other groups. Yeah. And you said that someone had calculated it, and I don't remember the exact figure, but it was, it was something along the lines of these groups are willing, or these individuals are willing to take a two-thirds chance of death in order to pursue a different life, a uh, better um, livelihood for themselves. Um, which makes deterrence incredibly difficult through yeah. conventional means, be that fence building or, um, you know, making things unlivable in the United States, as effectively is the current administration's yeah. um, uh, intent. And then the other point he made that I thought was really interesting and likely not understood well because it's somewhat counterintuitive uh, is he said that immigration flows... Uh, particularly in Africa, increased dramatically as countries became wealthier. Yeah. That it is not the poorest of the poor no, people who are making it, these journeys. It makes tons it's, of sense. You have the resources to do it. Like, that's, that's it, what it, it is, is right? Well, like, it's resource intensive, yeah. but also you generally, um, so as you have populations of young men and women becoming edu- increasingly yeah. more educated, well, I, I remember when a there bit was, more affluent, they yeah. tend to want to make the journey and pursue opportunities. And are better able to. Uh, which yeah. their parents were perhaps unaware of or 
didn't have the education yeah. to. Well, I think it's like worth remembering a couple of years ago when we had you know large influx from Syria through like the Greek islands to to Europe and other places that you know people were you know on the right especially were sort of like filling your diapers over people having cell phones right like oh my god like these Syrian refugees have smartphones like clearly they're not poor and it's like smartphones have actually made this much easier to do in the sense that they're portable you can communicate with them you can get on the internet with them like they're enormously helpful look at maps which i imagine is probably pretty helpful in these kinds of situations like this is exactly what you're pointing out is that as people sort of get richer in the developing world they have the opportunity and the incentive more so than they did before you know, like subsistence farmers like you know are less inclined to like you know take their goat or whoever uh or whatever i suppose uh and and like leave right because it's it's just like less imaginable for people at the subsistence level rather than people who are like well you know i have an education uh i want to go work somewhere but like the west looks a lot more attractive in many cases than like sweatshops with very poor labor conditions in the developing world absolutely it's like very understandable like i don't blame people for wanting to do that at all like it makes tons of sense like if you could live the rest of your life making like you know a couple dollars a day versus taking the chance to go to you know north america or europe and making much more than that and like having a much more comfortable standard of living like who would not take that opportunity right like or take that chance it's completely like normal so one one thing to note it uh one thing to note is we've shifted in our topic of conversation a little bit away from generally asylum seekers to economic migrants, which is an important distinction to keep. Um, But when we're talking about both uh, migrant asylum and refugee problems together, it's worth considering all three groups because all three groups are presented to domestic audience in a very similar way. No, I think that's completely right. And run together in a domestic audience's uh, head. Yes. And all all sort of get rolled together and yeah. looked at as one large number yeah. of how many net new people are coming into the country. I mean, obviously, I think there there is, like, it's a mix of factors for people often when they make the decision to leave their home countries. Like, people in, in Syria, obviously, were fleeing the civil war, but, like, ov- they also want to have a better standard of living. Same with people fleeing, you know, gang violence in, in El Salvador or what, what have you. It's, yeah, like, obviously, you don't want to die. I think that that's perfectly reasonable, but I think when you combine that with also, you know, you have the option of a higher standard of living. That's why you don't go to Mexico. You keep going, right? Yes. Like, I think that's like a very reasonable human response to adverse situations and, you know, the promise of something better at the other end. Like, that's very normal. So to return very briefly and just to wrap this conversation up, one, yeah. one of the other things potentially keeping um, these people in the United States instead of Canada, even with the suspension of the safe third, if that were to occur, would be the networks that they've created. Yeah. Um, Networks, family, other people. Um, So when you've come to the United States, uh, you've been living there for the past three years as your asylum claim is being processed. Yeah. um, Do you want to pack up and go to Canada and restart the process when you already have a job and a yeah. house and perhaps your children are in school um, and the answer is in yeah, some cases not. yes but in many cases likely not peripherally what's, what's very interesting is uh, a couple of decades ago when uh, American enforcement their southern border went up significantly you had a lot of more people decide to stay uh, because there were people who would basically come and go to work on farms and other sort of like seasonal or migrational work but then when the border sort of became much firmer... Have you been listening to Malcolm Gladwell? No, I haven't. Yeah, one I of find his... he sucks, so... <laughs> <laughs> one of his pieces wasn't exactly I mean, it makes it, it makes a ton of sense, right? The, the wall gets harder. You're like, well, I have to choose whether which side I have to stay on. Like, There, there are no outflows. Yeah. Exactly. Um, whereas, once upon a time, the relationship between, Canada, I mean, or, um, between Mexico and the United States yeah. used to be very circular. You'd have people come and do the... Uh, summer labor positions and then take that money and go back to their country because yeah. that's where their family was that's, that's where, where the family yeah. is now because the cost of coming into the United States is so difficult and so high yeah. that people come and then they don't return and so when they uh, gather sufficient wealth they then send for their family yeah. instead of simply returning to their family yeah Anyway, that, that was just sort of peripheral but interesting. Uh, did you, that wraps us up on immigration do you have more comments? Well, I, I just want to finish um, with Two points. So one, one, despite casting 
some doubt on how many people would come. I, I think it is still is a very real concern yeah. that the number of people who would come to Canada um, with such a symbolic gesture would quickly become overwhelming. Yeah. Um, that it's not simply, in, in terms of Canadian response, that incre- or backlogging lines for years does no one any benefit, mm-hmm. and that hiring and training immigration officers is not something that can be done on the spot. Right. That the system has a certain delay in it and is sort of as fast as it can be. Yeah. Without significant additional investment, but even with significant additional investment, well, this was something that there's uh, a delay in training. A lot yeah. of people look at government and think government can sort of operate on a dime <laughs> and say like, okay, well, we'll do double. people think that really? Well, some people do. Some people do, especially when it comes to things like this. Be like, oh yeah, we'll we'll double the amount of funding for the the processing department yeah. and if this were, yeah, twice twice the claims will be processed. As with anything else, like any other human organization in the world, like things take time to implement, ramp up, etc. Uh, And my my second and last point will be that even if, so suspension obviously becomes a a political gesture, but in discussing the status quo, it's important to note that we're not bound by the safe third country agreement in terms of returning people to the United States. There is a clause in the safe third that says basically like, this is up to the country if if they want to make use of it. Yeah. Um, so if Canada has individuals claiming at ports of entry or otherwise that we deem and assess, if, if the current um, government wants to suspend it without suspending it, that's an option. And I would prefer that as an option to uh, suspending the agreement because it keeps that tool in the toolbox for later. Okay. Which flat out suspending it does not. That is entirely fair. Um Doug Ford, first couple of weeks of the, the new Ontario government. I don't government. think that was next on the uh, we'll itinerary. Come, we're, we, like, we're, we're half hour in. We'll, sure. we'll come back to things. Just uh, we, we got more out of the Safe of the Country than I thought we would. So, <laughs> so uh, D- Doug Ford, let, yeah. let me say this. Um, also, I have an episode title in mind that I want to use, so I really want to make sure we get Doug in here. Go for it. I have, I have two observations. Um, the first one is process. I was actually surprised to see how much the Ontario government, uh, by that the bureaucrats, were able to do them. and started to do prior to Doug yeah. Ford formally being sworn in. So there was in. like I'm the cancellation. Not really sure. Yeah, there was a cancellation of the like home renovation eco program or whatever it was, and a couple other things. Uh, also, like the periodical cancellation, where basically they, they like the Ontario government stopped subscribing to like every newspaper, <laughs> and now it's only like the legislative office in like the, like the premier's office basically is going to have like any. I saw that basically people were directed if they had need of like a specific article to literally write like their equivalent of the Privy Council office to ask for a copy of it, which seems like that's going to slow things down a bit. Uh, but your point about who had the authority to actually make that decision is interesting because as we've talked about caretaker convention before, usually your job is sort of, you're not making policy decisions, you're keeping the lights on, you're sort of just keeping, yes. keeping these humming. So either liberal caretaker ministers made this decision. No. No, well... The, Hear me out. Hear me out. Either they did that, or the civil service did it on its own authority, on basically the say so of ministers from the incoming progressive conservative government who were not yes. sworn in yet. Well, this, this, you had to wait for me to finish this again. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Is both these options are like very contrary to convention. Like typically, before you are sworn in, you don't call up the civil service and say, "Hey, do this," because like you're not sworn in. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are some examples of this happening, but I think it's... To be clear, I think the latter is more likely. Like, it, I, yes, I, I think the latter is correct. Yeah. Um, I, I just thought it was interesting to see happen that there were so many articles about, you know, Doug Ford's reforms or changes going into effect prior to the signing in. Yeah. Um, so that, that's just my first observation. Um, my second one is how quickly people fall into tropes and old narratives. Yeah. Um, so without, without judging the merits of the decision to fire the chief scientist of the government of Ontario, the fact that he did this, okay, I mean, you're certainly able to fire as many order and council appointments or whatever. Sure. Well, I don't know the Ontario there system. are stories of, yeah, yeah. yeah, that serve at pleasure as yeah. opposed to good behavior. Um, good behavior. Yeah. You're certainly able to fire as many of these people as you want to, um, 
But the amount of people ready to jump on the anti-science narrative, that's a holdover okay. from the good old days sure. of the Harper government. At the same time, though, this Oof. is this is a guy who ran on basically climate change isn't real, or like at least we don't have to do anything about it because it's not real to me, damn it. Um, and like, I, you can see, and then there's like, first thing in office is get ready. Like, not, not first, you can say, there's you a can't package, really, you can't really like, okay, sure, whatever, but you can't really blame like, the libs being triggered by a decision that was obviously meant to trigger them, if you will. I think, like, it's a very normal reaction to that decision to be like, well, that seems like exactly the same bullshit that we were just done with at the federal level, because, like, that's exactly what he wanted people to think. This is red meat for his base to make the liberals angry. His next move could be... I, I see the liberals broadly here. But. Bill Nye, the science guy, I mean, as, as our chief scientist. I, I, whoever like... he appoints will probably be worse than Bill Nye, the science guy, to be honest with you. <laughs> worse or better? Worse. Oh. Perhaps you have too strong an opinion of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye is a good public communicator. No, on science he's issues. an absolute trash public communicator. Uh, I have to agree to disagree he's, on this one. I he's think. Terrible. I, I'll send you some. I'll send you some things to read on <laughs> Bill Nye. Uh, <laughs> the contempt with which you said Bill Nye. <laughs> so th- this is just my point: is that how readily people pick up and see this as an extension of the Harper government? Yeah. Doug Ford. And Stephen Harper could not be be more different people um, in terms of leadership style, um, to an extent in terms of beliefs um, on the conservative spectrum. Very, very different people. Um, I think it will be important for everyone's credibility to not fall into the ruts uh, of saying this is is Harper too. I, I think Harper derangement syndrome was not good for people. I think I think the take a deep breath rule is like going to be an important one to, to keep in mind over the next couple of years for people on the the broad left or center left. Like I think just like yeah, like take a deep breath every time like something like this happens and like just actually like look into it, make sure you're not overreacting because it is easy to overreact, right? Like it's very easy in politics to overreact to things and you know just look at the headline and be like my god, right? Like and that's normal. It's human. I don't really like feel like i'm not angry at people for doing that but like it is worth it just to keep your own like head screwed on straight that you like just take it down a notch and like look into it obviously there are going to be things worth getting mad about and, and like you know you should get mad at them right like but it just pick like pick your pick your targets you're it's going to be a target rich environment and uh pick them because uh you got to be selective sure yeah those are my two points okay. on the nascent doug ford government do you um, have anything to add? I mean, I think, yeah, obviously, this is, like, the flouting of convention, I think, is very intentional. So, I don't know if you've ever watched The Wire. I have. At, so, least, at least three seasons. Do you remember, or you may not have seen this, because I think this may have been in the fourth season, but when Tommy Kirketty is sworn in as mayor of Baltimore, uh, spoilers, sorry if anybody <laughs> hasn't watched the show, uh, it's very good and you should, uh, he basically, like, goes around to, like, the city hall, like, around the different departments and says, like, hey, I saw a playground that was, like, rusty. Hey, I saw a car, like, a broken down car. You should remove it. And basically the idea was there was, without specifying, then they, all, like, all the city employees, like, scrambled to, like, you know, clean up all the playgrounds, get rid of all the cars and stuff. Sure. And I think that's very much what Doug was kind of going for here was, like, this sort of, like, not really going through regular channels, like, let's get the government working sort of effort. Um, which, you know, and like, you know, I'm, I, I care so much. I'm going to tell the bureaucrats what to do even before I get sworn in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, th- I think this is like setting the tone for the kind of thing he's going to do, which is like not caring too much about the finer points of like what he's technically allowed to do or like the technical procedure of how to do things. Um, and just kind of going for it. And then, sure, but it's yeah. always on the, uh, on the back of the, uh, civil servants. Yeah. To say no, assert process. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Where, where I, process I, I agree with that. Like, I think civil servants have a responsibility in this instance too. That if they think like procedure and norms are important, then they should observe them in their own work. I think that's like, you know, you are independent. You are civil service. Like, you have certain you know prerogatives with face to face the elected government, and you should you know do your best to give the government good advice and comply with what it's you know what it does when it goes through the correct channels but like i think it's fair to ask for the receipts if you are the public service right like i think you got to know that what you're doing as a public servant is legally sanctioned and like lawful like that's that's there's a bit of like both ways there you gotta like stand up for yourself a bit come on ontario public servants have some respect for yourself (laughs) damn it 
Um, no, so we'll see what happens with the Doug government. I mean, obviously, like, I'm not thrilled or especially optimistic. Uh, but how good is it that the liberals are down to seven seats? I mean, that admittedly is extremely good. I think worst possible outcome would have been them still being an official party. <laughs> um, we'll see. We'll see if they are thrown that bone. I don't think... I, I think it would be very smart for Doug to do so because it would, like, give the liberals a huge edge and allow them to kind of, like grow whereas if he's just if he's facing another binary choice between ndp or pcs i think he will have a tough time next election i think he'll piss off a lot of people that voted for him you know this time because the pcs were the other option yeah so um, you're of the don't kill the liberals entirely pump, if i were their no, tires I, a I mean bit. i personally am like please drown the liberals well, yeah. back in the river <laughs> yeah. please do but uh yeah i mean the more breathing room he gives them the better for him i think uh, but I don't know. I think his desire to to see them destroyed and you know see them driven before him, hear the limitations of their women, etc., uh, will be quite strong. And I think a lot of the PC base will also, you know, watching them get sort of thrown to the lions uh, will be entertaining for many of them. I mean, it will be entertaining for me. I don't like once again like. I'm speaking from the strategical and the sort of personal amusement viewpoints very differently here, and like. I just think that the, the lure of the personal amusement one and personal satisfaction will be very strong for, for Doug Ford. He does not strike me as a man who would be willing to throw away a good a good lull, a good hearty chuckle. Uh, so, you know, that's my point of view. I don't know the guy, but, you know, that's the, the sense I get. Um, Premier Shrek, at it again. I was thinking of the PM's whole meeting with Doug Ford. Let's, yes, not, that was, let's not touch on that too much. Yeah. Well, and also, okay, this is actually something worth noting, speaking to the refugee and resettlement issue, is that he sort of said, fuck off, we're full, uh, as the bumper sticker so memorably puts it, um, which is interesting because I think people on the sort of intellectual center right in this last provincial election were saying, you know, Doug Ford is not Trump, Ford Nation is a very different kind of beast, it's very, you know, multi-ethnic, multicultural, very urban, which is, I think was true, right? I think it's, like, impossible to look at Doug Ford's voter coalition and the, the Ford Machine's voter coalition in Toronto and say that it's it's very overwhelmingly white or whatever, because I think that's just not true. But it does seem like now that he's on this bigger stage, he's playing the politics of that bigger stage and adopting more typical right-wing rhetoric when it comes to like urban minorities and and refugees and so this is where i revert to my second point of the two points i made the careful not to fall in old tropes i don't know if his decision to suspend cooperation with the federal government on resettlement until they started essentially financing a little more from the federal pie constituted that at all no i mean i, 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 I think, think i think the tendency to want to fall into that yeah um is well, strong like, it's is, like, what's is incredibly the, strong what's the alternate reading here it's like, a, like what's like the best best intentions reading of this that you can see besides this is something that is popular with my base to sort of beat up on refugees like what like i just don't so, see what the like so you've had the uh toronto city uh, city of Toronto, I guess, um, come out and say that uh, with the costs incurred by refugee resettlement, they're looking for a larger slice of the pie. Yeah. The province from the federal government. From the federal yeah. government. The province obviously feels the same way. Yeah. So, you know, this could be the opening salvo sure. in an attempt to pressure the government into greater funding for... Yeah. Um, sure. Refugee resettlement but, and some of the costs being borne yeah. by the provincial government, so John namely Tory, in education and other areas. John Tory is the person who, who is most squeezed here, and he has kept that channel open with the government because I think he sees that this is sort of a... Sure. And I, I think it is you, you impossible... Asked me, you asked me for the best yeah, no, 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 sure. And I, and I will respond to that by saying, I think if you read what John Tory did and you look at... like I think he has made a conscious decision not to inflame this and keep it a technical and sort of back-channel diplomatic issue rather than a, like, let's, you know, get the torches and pitchforks out over this. I think, frankly, if you turn refugees into a torch pit... Ah, blah, torch picks. (laughs) (laughs) Torches and pitchforks issue, you kind of know what you're going to get, right? Like, I think no one goes into that naively at this point in the game. That's my... That's just my reading of that. So, I I think there's... Mm, I, 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 so I have some disagreement there. I think John Tory has a very different uh, modus operandi. Sure, he's very different in style he's and, very, and political substance. I, I honestly see him as 
almost quiet and deferential to the federal government a lot of these things yeah. and that's where you go to your back channels uh, conversation and obviously that is not Doug Ford style no like in in the slightest no, sure. and, and never will be um, so I think there will be a lot of things yeah. that perhaps would by so, more by more refined types yeah. be kept to back channels sure. but the fact that Doug Ford is litigating this in public yeah I don't think is necessarily immediately indicative. No, I think best case scenario. Trumpian term. Sure. No, no, I don't. I'm, and like, I'm not saying that, right? I, I just think it's more standard right wing rhetoric. On, I think he was exceptionally liberal on immigration and cultural issues, except for for crime, uh, than most conservatives. Like, or compared to most conservatives before sure. becoming premier. Now he's catering to a, a more normal conservative audience outside of Toronto, which whose politics are frankly weird right compared like it's a big city that is has a its own distinctive politics so i just think rather than saying it's a trumpy turn i think it's a more normal conservative turn which isn't to say that it's good uh, but it, it's certainly like i personally think that it's irresponsible to do this i think that the best case scenario is that doug ford didn't really think this through and what the impacts would be for someone who i think i think people should want to turn down the heat a little bit on immigration politics i don't think anybody is well served by a very vitriolic tone in immigration politics especially like towards refugees i think like they're humans who are fleeing terrible circumstances and i think you know this this rhetoric of like muslims trying to like convert the world or whatever is like just not really helpful to anyone so I'd, i'd rather see less of that but anyway, uh, I think, yeah, at best, it's, it's irresponsible for him to just go sort of half-cocked on this. Okay. But whatever. I don't like Doug Ford, so, you know, take, take for what it's worth. What else is on the agenda? Um, we have the, uh, the ass grab. <laughs> that we do not know. The alleged ass grab. The alleged could have been an ass grab. Well, it sounds pretty confirmed that it, that it was, in fact, an ass grab at this point. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we fill people in? Oh, well, I don't. I don't think there's anyone who listens to our podcast that frankly needs to be filled in, um, sure. unless they are somehow are under a rock it's, and only maybe they were at the cottage. Their only source of information is this podcast, which you know, um, p- please please don't do that. <laughs> so what what's there to say about this? Um, what indeed? What indeed? It happened. Yes. Um, I think so. So listen, from my perspective. Uh, media and politicians have very different responsibilities in this regard. Yeah. One of the turning points of the conversation is the desire of the woman um, who was assaulted, let's say, um, to rehash this, to be public about it, to make a statement on it. And ultimately, she did make a statement on it uh, notably this morning, because I think. I think it was last night. Sure. Um, notably because she thought that media would out her name yeah. one way or another, that it, that it would eventually become public. Um, so because of that public pressure, um, she proactively made a statement and essentially asked for her privacy and wanted no further part in the, the conversation. Yeah. Um, and to my knowledge, hasn't given any media interviews on it. No. Um, but that all of the research has been done by media who've been prying into it sort of try and get to the bottom of it. Um, in so Can- to speak. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, Canadian politics, there's actually been a reasonably long-held uh, convention of not getting into the personal nitty-gritty um, of uh, politicians' sex lives. This is not that. No. Um, but there was certainly some reticence on the part of the media to initially report this when it was published in Frank Magazine and other places. Yeah. And it seems sort of, I'll call it the chain of custody here, went from Frank to Twitter, um, Warren Kinsella notably, of course. <laughs> Keep stirring that pot, Warren. Uh, um, <laughs> to Breitbart, to the New York Times, and then that's sort of when it hit the mainstream in Canada. And I think there's an important distinction in terms of how media pursues the story and about now that the story is in the public domain about um, politicians and the Canadian public discussing it and holding the prime minister to account for this, particularly in light of the PM's public persona around feminism. And I think his comments so far have been both contradictory and lackluster. Yeah. And they have been incredibly 
hypocritical to the treatment he has given to former members of his caucus. Yeah, see, this is where I think, like, the firmest ground is to be found. Because, I mean, I like think, obviously, it's it's this is challenging because, like, I, I think we, we should respect this person's privacy if she doesn't really want to have herself dragged into it. I think that's, like, obviously fine. Uh, I think the Prime Minister, uh, that he's done this in the past, is concerning. I think, like... There was a lot of a lot of rumors going around a couple months ago about the prime minister's conduct with other things that we won't get into because it never really surfaced and I don't want to get sued. Um, but yeah, so I think like it's worrying, and for sure, like as you've pointed out, like he has shit canned people for less. Uh, well, okay, I should phrase that differently. It's not that he shit canned people for less; is that the justifications he's giving for excusing his conduct in this regard are at odds with what he said. When in the while shit canning other people, yes. Um, so that I think is a tension that I think he does need to address. And I think I think frankly the most productive thing for him would be like, you know what, like yeah, I really did fuck up here, and you know it it was a long time ago, and I'm a different person now. And I think people would have been like, okay, right. But because he sort of has always said I am the most woke person ever, like ever to live. This is, becomes difficult for him. And this is part of the narrative he's spun for himself. Yeah. Is that when asked about his feminism and his perspectives on all these things, he goes back to his time at McGill. Yeah. So he doesn't... Yeah, exactly. Say, he set a trap for himself here. Yeah. He, he doesn't say, like, oh, this is something uh, that, you know, for the past 10 years, I, since I watched... James Franco video or something like that. Oh this. my god, that does sound like something he would say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it was James Franco. I think it might have been someone else. Whatever. But uh, yeah, it was something like I watched a James Franco video and that, you know, really turned up why I needed to be vocal on feminism. Yeah. But he, he does often trace back to his McGill days, which, you know, is a long time ago. And I guess. But it's like about witness. This. Yeah. Um, exactly. So yeah. he was already woke when this happened. Yes, if, if, <laughs> if you will, your your wokeification. Yeah. If it happened in your undergrad, yeah. then it's See, it's hard the to is, reconcile these. Everyone things. has a pre woke period, but like he sort of drew his in such a way as to make him, his life very difficult. Um, from the other side, though, I do want to say, um, I have I am always leery to approach these things as like partisan political issues in the sense that like I. Th- have found the glee, the evident glee of conservatives sort of litigating this on Twitter and in the press very uncomfortable uh, in the sense that this was a party that a couple months ago was saying, well, you know, soon you're going to have people trying to ruin people's political careers over minor things that happened 20 years ago, and (laughs) here we are. (laughs) Exactly that. So I Um, I think the challenge here is presenting conservatives as a homogenous group. No, okay. Here. Like what I mean is I mean the no. the partisan apparatus around the leader. No, and I understand yeah. that. I, I don't mean every single conservative. Yes, but I, I think the the people who from the conservative party who've been vocal on yeah. this. But this is clearly like the are message. A, are a hand I mean I think it is. I, I think know. it is a tan. I think like you watch you watch conservative MPs fighting with liberal MPs over this on Twitter. You look at the tone coming out of the leader's office. You hear kind of what their usual spin people are saying, like in the media, what the sun what the sun is saying. Like this is clearly something that is at the very least very endorsed at the top of the conservative work chart. Like I I see it as coming from the party, and like I think there's no like I, you know what you're saying is you don't really have evidence to say that. Like I think I, I'm a reasonably astute observer of Canadian politics at this point and I can tell when something comes coming from a leader's office and this is obviously coming from a leader's office. So the reason I um, sort of am willing to give a little bit more benefit of the doubt here is that the fact of the matter I, I think regardless of whether or not there had been you know this this edict you are alluding to from the leader's office which I question um, Under protest. <laughs> <laughs> that I think this conversation would still be happening in the exact same ways. I think you'd still have some of the same women from the Conservative yeah. Party, uh, namely the Rempels and the sure. Rates, Harder, would be approaching this in exactly the same way. Yeah. Um, if anything, if I were to um, theoretically be in the leader's office, the edict wouldn't be push on this. It would be rather to restrain and to make sure that you've restrained the right people. Um, obviously, if male MPs jump in on this, um, 
Well, you don't want, like... It, it becomes... Yeah. It becomes a different conversation. You so, don't want any of your landmines to start going off about this, for sure. So I, I <laughs> so I think if I were in the leader's office, it wouldn't be directing anyone. It would be going to some people that you'd be concerned would yeah. be um, speaking out on this and saying, let's let this one either be dealt with by other people okay, or but what, what you're describing separately. What you're describing is a calm strategy. Right, like you're not saying that like they're underplaying this. They're just saying we're gonna pick our standard bearers on this and let them go forth. Right, like no, I, that's just like normal. No, that's but what, what I'm you saying do. is, what I'm saying is, there's some autonomy here. No, for sure. But like, I do think that like they're obviously the conservatives see partisan gain for them in this, and it's just like a bit rich coming from like their messaging of six months ago on on me too. So you can call it partisan gain, or you can call it. Um, public interest, like these, I think okay. go. I think they I th- go hand in hand here. I think that there is a public interest way of so, handling it. I have found the very gleeful, very partisan way that the conservatives have done it supremely distasteful. And I say this as someone who is not at all sympathetic to the prime minister. Like I, I have no sympathy for him in this. Do you, do you have a specific instance that you're like? I just like referring to? just on Twitter, like and like look at the sun and Twitter. Really, is like and, and like I agree; those are the absolute worst parts of the conservative ecosystem. But like, it does look like I, I have personally found it very off-putting. And like, ugh, okay, I I can't speak to the sun. I don't that that is fair. Like, I, we, I we have, we have different we have different media environments that we look at. <laughs> yes. So like, fair enough. I I think I tend to look at further right media sources than you do. I find it interesting, but um, yeah, no, I mean, I think they're they're like, it, it is just a, like a lot. It is a lot. Sure. And yeah, once again, I say that as someone who has absolutely no interest in exculpating the Prime Minister on this, I, I think that he should be held accountable for his actions and statements. Um, and that's why I find the fact that, or my, my perception that the Conservatives are turning this into a very, very partisan, aggressive thing about getting Trudeau, rather than critiquing the, you know, someone's inconsistencies or sure yeah like i I just find that the tenor of it is and i I hate to tone police i really do uh but i I just i'm just i i I find it really cringy basically is is at the end of the day what what my reaction is i tend to somewhat disagree with you but uh, you disagree with me a lot of things (laughs) i note i note your disagreement fair enough uh shuffle um okay so we're really we're really short on time so just uh Okay, just, I mean, we've mentioned this before. Um, I think there will be a shuffle. Yeah. Um, late. Uh, it was August maybe, last year. It'll be mid-August yeah. if there is one, just before the uh, Liberal Cabinet retreat. Yeah. Um, and everything getting put back in order for the House. Yeah. Uh, I think they're overdue for a shuffle. I think some... I mean, one a year is, like, some people. Uh, well, they haven't done a large shuffle. They haven't moved many yeah. people in a while. Well, last year was reasonably significant. I mean, you had the, the CERNA disc split. You had a new person in the health ministry. Like, you had a couple fairly significant moves. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was like, it was like it was a few. tier two, for sure. sure. But, like, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think one of the things to watch here is tier one. Yes. Um, namely, Morneau. Yeah. Um, did he ride out the storm? Is he interested in being a politician still? I think that's two different questions. Yeah, because um, I think like I think there was not a desire on the part of the Liberals to hand the Conservatives and the NDP a scalp on that one. Like there just really wasn't. Um, we'll see. I think they had to protect protect Bill. Um, but does he really like? From all accounts, he's not interested in like doing MP stuff. Like he doesn't really fundraise in his writing. He doesn't really do events in his writing. For just if someone is in Toronto Center and you see Bill Morneau all the time, like let me know. But this is my impression from what I've heard from other people. He's, he's not helping you fill out your passport application. No, well, I'm sure his staff are, but like he's not very visible or present as an MP, right? Like I'm sure this summer he's not doing the barbecue circuit as hard as a lot of other Toronto area Liberal MPs. I think that that's all I'm saying there. Sure. I whether he's shuffled out or to another spot of in cabinet. Um, I would honestly be kind of surprised to see him run again. Maybe there'll be a lot of pressure put on him to do so because he's kind of like the Liberals' Bay Street credibility in- incarnated. Um, so that is important. I think, like we were talking earlier, like the finance role is mostly a diplomatic post to capital and the finance industry. That's what it is. It's basically you just got to make sure that they're like they're happy with what you're doing. And... A diplomatic post to capital. That's what it is. 
you write your budget your budget is treaties basically you say you guys get this much this year we get this much and like that you know you preserve investor confidence which is basically it's sort of like industrial relations and avoiding strikes and also a diplomatic posting kind of at the same time it's very interesting i think like there should there, there's a great there's a great sort of like political economy analysis of the post of finance minister to be written sometime but uh, that's i think that's a perfectly defensible point of view that's the role so we'll see if Ambassador Morneau is, uh, <laughs> is still on the table next yeah. year. Um, yeah, I mean, Jolie is the other one to watch. Yeah, um, what do you think would happen with her? Because she seems to be... I mean, she's been kind of a political disaster for Quebec. Uh, I think her misadventures have had less attention elsewhere in the country, for the most part. There have been exceptions to this. Ooh, it's worth... Uh, yeah, we've talked about Toulon on uh, Pal before. But it's worth... Uh, I actually meant to mention this ages ago when Andrew Shear did his stint on Toulon Pal. It actually went remarkably well. I heard that as well, yeah. Um, it was really interesting to see him defend, and they did not go easy, um, on. Go easy on him at yeah. all. They brought up some more contentious uh, policy issues, guns, abortion. Yeah, they're not shy about that on that show. It's not, um, it's not a softball no, at all. <laughs> no holds barred. Yeah. And he actually walked away from it pretty well. Yeah. Um, Melanie Jolie, on the other hand, got absolutely roasted. Yeah. Um, Jagmeet, I listened to some of his. I heard it went pretty well. I didn't watch it because I just don't really watch it a lot. I heard it went reasonably well. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Trudeau. So, like, she seems to have been yeah. the politician skewered this year. Yeah. And the politician from Quebec who's, uh, whose hopes are looking the bleakest. Well, and, uh, she, like, almost became mayor of Montreal a couple of years ago. Like, she's yeah, someone who's an incredibly narrow margin. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I mean, it's just, like, she had... Like a pretty high profile and a lot of goodwill going into this position. It seems yeah. to have, so we'll see what happens with her. Uh, I would be surprised if she left Cap entirely, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I honestly, I, I am really okay. We won't we won't speculate too much. Sure. Just stay tuned for that. Just to put that on the calendar. Um, I will quickly make a note just in uh, to wrap up all the coverage of C forty five and all the discussion of C forty five. That of course C forty five passed the Senate. Um, well, I was in Morocco um, and achieved royal assent. Coming into force is set, I believe, for October 17th. 17th. Yeah, I believe so. Um, 42nd week of the year. The government has released um, unofficial regs. Uh, official regs are to be published in Gazette 2. Um, As they in, always are. In late July. Um, reading through the regs, it is hilarious. Um, so there were some stories about how cannabis companies were getting innovative in uh, marketing techniques. Sure. Um, such as putting a QR code on, this is a Globe story, putting a QR code on the package so that a consumer could go up with their cell phone and the, it would be plain packaging, but they'd be able to see a digital package oh, and a video would play. very clever. And things like this. And it oh, was. That's really smart. Because they outed their own strategies, all of these things are yeah. just systematically squashed in the ranks. Fair enough. I mean, like, look, the intent of a plain packaging law is, is the intent. And, like, if you get around it, like, I, that is a totally appropriate to regulate around. So there's a history of yeah. uh, tobacco companies doing this. Yeah. Of having plain packaging, but the plain packaging was on an insert that you could then remove and throw out. Sure. And then there was another packaging on the. <laughs> Inside, that was distinctly everyone sexier. Everyone looking, looking really cool smoking. Um, but when you look through the regs, it's funny to see how nuanced they became. Yeah. To try, like, they talk about the ridges on the packages. Ooh. The packages cannot emit an odor. Like, they've literally planned, like, scratch and sniff or, like, smell um, sound cannot emanate from the package. Like, just things like this. Like, wow. They've really gone over it with a fine-tooth comb. Oh, good on them. Which should have been expected by all the companies bragging about their innovative ways, too. Yeah, I mean, that's good regulatory work, so hats off. Yeah. That's, that's really good. Um, so, yeah, everyone, everyone can look forward to that. Do you want to you get your beer review in? Um, beer review? Uh, but before the beer review, I think it's worth noting our summer read. Ah, yes. Our summer read. Um, so I read it while I was in Morocco. I've now handed off the book to Laurent to take a rip through. We'll, uh, we'll cover that length a few podcasts from now, uh, perhaps in early August. It's called At the Center of Government, um, The Prime Minister and the Limits on Political Power. It's by Ian Brody. Ian Brody was, of course, one of uh, Harper's first uh, chiefs of staff yes. and is now a professor at University of Calgary. Um, it's a very fun book, a reasonably easy read. 
Um, super short, a little pricey because it's done through an academic publisher, uh, but certainly worth the money. Uh, so if any of you would like to pick it up and read along with us over the course of the summer, uh, we'll have a good chat about it in uh, early August. Um, by way of context, um, Ian's thesis essentially is to try and rebut some of the common perceptions of Canadian media, Yeah, primarily those advanced by Donald Savoie. Well, so, he's not really media. Or, yeah. sorry, sorry, not, yeah, not, well, Canadian media and Canadian well, yes, I think academic media, literature. Yeah, I mean, media is very influenced by Savoie. Because um, he was the only person on the subject for forever, so, like, yes. yeah, it's fair enough. And so he, he addresses Savoie pretty directly in the book and talks about Savoie's book, At the Center of Government. Yeah. And so it's intended to be a rebuttal of that, and it's basically uh, intended to tell you why MPs, even backbench MPs, are not, you know, clapping seal, the clapping seals that they're so often made out to be. Yeah. And where the real pressure points are in yes. government. And I think that that is entirely fair. I think if you look at, if you look at everything absent the caucus room, it's very easy to come away with Savoie's impression. I think when you understand the dynamics of caucus a little better, and that re- very important aspect of, of management as, as, you know, a elected government um, having to manage your, your caucus, I think is very, very important. It's a, it's a very nuanced relationship, and that very much dictates the limits of where you can and can't go. Um, that's my perception, anyway. So I would say that I don't know if that's Brodus thesis, but that's I think that would be my perception. But anyway, we probably shouldn't go on too much longer because we're already <laughs> super over. But um, yeah, so we'll talk about that a month from now ish, uh, maybe sooner, maybe later. Um, we'll skip the review, I guess. I think we that's fine. Anyway. Uh, that'll do it for us. Collective Arts, they were good. They were good. Uh, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thank you for, for bearing with our extended, staggered travel absences here. Uh, much respect to you. And we will see you next time. Next week. Bye-bye.